Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get right to it in advance for Global Wall Street, the story of this February. We can do this with Saeed Lada, head of G10 Rate Strategy at America's at BNP uh, Paribas. Saeed, I love your research note. And what I note there is the migration from four to six rate hikes in the United States. What do you need to see to ever go more from six to eight rate hikes? Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for having me. Um, Look, I, I think we've been uh, on the hawkish side for some time and really opening up the distribution to more. Um, there is a question of, of length of runway, and I think that question is even more asked now with the ECB and the, and the Bank of England being a little more aggressive on, on exit plans. The Fed needs to move. The Fed needs to move quickly. It's clearly behind the curve. Um, and six rate hikes may, may be more that the center of a distribution. We can see more. Wow. Uh, we could see one every meeting and, and we don't rule out 50 or a Fed funds rate at close to 2% at year end. So, hey, let's just build on what you just said, the length of the runway. Does it make it easier or harder that they're all trying to do this at the same time? Look, I mean, we've heard from Powell this time is different. That's something we've said before. And, and how this time is different, we think, is with velocity. This is about pace of the recovery pace of the exit on both the fiscal and the monetary side. And the second is synchronization. Synchronization against, again, between the fiscal and monetary forces, both heading for the exit post-pandemic, but also the synchronization between uh, different central banks moving at the same time. Look, ultimately, I think it might be more difficult for asset markets and the, the global economy, you know, as central banks move increasingly together on the exit on both the balance sheet and the level of rates. This is why I think it's important to call it regime change, Shahid, because in the previous regime, we'd see a bond market sell off and believe it was self-limiting in many ways because these central banks would have to back away. When we think about a change in regime, Shahid, are you thinking about maybe that that dynamic doesn't exist anymore? Um, no, actually. So I think we can get to where we're going quicker um, which is velocity part. But I don't think the destination in itself has necessarily changed. We don't think that a new normal for the long term or neutral rate is above 3%. So we still feel like term yields are somewhere capped below three, probably 10 at two and a half or below. So we think we can get we can get there quicker we can get to two and, and above quicker. But we're not convinced we go above. There remains a lot of liquidity in the system and lots of fixed income duration demand, which we think comes in if and when central banks reach their peak, perhaps quicker uh, than before. Shahid, what you're describing sounds like it's screaming yield curve, uh, yield curve uh, going down, going negative for the first time in a long time. Inversion, excuse me, it's Monday, I'm having trouble. But honestly, going forward, how much is that a concern that basically you're saying the Fed is way behind the curve and that seems clear to you? Why are we not necessarily forecasting a recession sooner if that really is your base case? Look, it is, a, it is a concern. We do have the curve flattening. We certainly see two tens mechanically flattens basically to zero through the rate cycle. And at the end of the rate cycle ends at zero. 
Likewise, five thirty is often moved the same. So clearly, the risk is the curve continues to flatten under the scenario we've outlined. But I, I would probably like to answer that with a counter, uh, which is what's worse, a flat or slightly inverted curve or a super steep curve because maybe the market can't take all the duration or because inflation becomes much more of a long-term risk and fear than a relatively short-term one, which is priced. So I think a flat curve is not ideal for the Fed, but I think it's perhaps a better evil than a, a very steep curve with, with credit implications as well. Shahid, you're talking about consumer sentiment. How much does that play into the ECB's perspective as well? We heard uh, about their concern about oil prices, sure. Uh, the labor market is not quite the same. How much are they trying to get ahead of people believing in inflation that they have not seen in decades? Sure. I mean, look, the, the ECB and, and I guess to some extent the BOJ are in a very uh, extreme level of monetary policy that they felt maybe they'd be stuck in for some time. And I'm talking about negative interest rate policy, and that comes with a bunch of costs and unintended consequences. So to some extent, I think the ECB should, should, should embrace the ability to get through negative rates back into positive territory, which we think they get to zero at the end of this year and positive next year. Um, but clearly, we've seen from Belgium this week, Germany last week, and, and across the Eurozone in recent months. Inflation is, is not a figment of the ECB or anyone else's imagination. It's real. Yes, the labor market is different. It will take time, probably, for wage growth in, in Europe. But we think it's coming. And therefore, we think the ECB needs to be uh, somewhat on the forefront of, of exiting and at least getting back to zero or, or positive um, rates. Jay, you've just finished on something that I think is, is really important. We spent a long, long time since the ECB went into negative territory eight years ago in the summer of 14, discussing how beneficial that was actually for the ECB to do so for the European economy. What do you think to the argument that maybe this might help the Eurozone economy getting back to zero, getting back to positive territory? I, I think it can help. Um, I think it can help. You know, some, some inflation, a much better labor market, wage growth. Um, I think we can change or we hope to, to see a shift in you know, the structural level of growth and inflation in, in Europe to, to a better level or a better place. Uh, hopefully we can see the same in Japan over time too. So, you know, yes, we're worried about inflation. And, and in the US and UK, it's, it's extremely high and perhaps it will be more of a challenge to bring it down. But in regions that have gone years, if not decades, without proper, you know, without positive inflation and without a positive central bank rate, um, this is, we think, a, a positive outcome or good, good evolution. Shahid Nadha of BNP. Shahid, fantastic. As always, super, super smart and great to catch up with you, sir. John, as you know, and I think our audience has a good understanding of this, particularly global Wall Street, there's ways that you read research. And this was a weekend, John, after the tumult of last week where I really sat and read every word of the research. And what's fascinating is what this inflation report tells us about the importance of future inflation reports. Do we begin to embed 7 or 6 or 5% inflation? Let's talk about the research from RBC. Laurie Cavas. Yeah. the head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets, joins us now. Laurie, you say five good things we're seeing in the data right now. Can we start with the good stuff? Let's start there. 
Sure. I think, you know, one of those we're right smack dab in the middle of right now, earnings are holding in. And actually, we put out something over the weekend where we talked about how we've actually seen earnings estimates move up a little bit for this year and next year. Complete opposite of what a lot of people were fearful of a a few weeks ago. I would say another thing that's really good right now, John, um, I think that we've largely priced in a more aggressive Fed. Now, we haven't priced in the economic damage that an aggressive Fed might incur. But if you look at the multiple contraction we've seen year to date, it's been about 17 percent at the January lows. That's right in line with the average of the last five or six uh, Fed tightening cycles going back to the 1990s. So I think the Fed is basically in the market right now. Again, if the Fed damages the economy, we still have to price that in. And then I would lastly just give you AAII net bullishness. A couple weeks ago, we got down to levels that were actually below 2020 lows. Let that sink in for a second. But what we've seen historically is that when we get below minus 10% on a four-week average on the net bullishness, so the bears outnumber the bulls by 10% or more, you see a 15% pop in markets over the next 12 months. So that's something else that's telling me that we've priced in a lot of this bad news from the Fed already. Uh, uh, Lori, Ben Laidler over at eToro calculates out a 26% lift in earnings. He makes a note that it's coming in again better than expected. Can you already model that confidence forward? Can you can you take an, can you construct this morning a confidence in earnings for this Q1? So I think that we, you know, Q1, as I've read through transcripts, it seems to me like it's going to be a messy quarter. Now, we haven't really seen companies, you know, sit here and say things are a disaster, right? Like if you look at the consumer in particular, people are being vigilant. They're watching the low end. But I would say that the confidence level does seem to me a little bit shakier than what we've seen, um, you know, sort of the past few quarters, whether you're looking at demand, whether you're looking at reads on confidence, less uncertainty. I would say there's maybe a little bit more, you know, kind of uh, nervousness right now. But by and large, companies are being given the opportunity to kind of reset expectations in a nasty way for this year, reset expectations in a nasty way for the quarter. And they're simply not doing it. They're still telling us that demand is generally okay. Even though, you know, we, we've come through a little bit of a rough patch and they've maybe had a little bit more trouble than usual dealing with that. Is there a sense, Lori, of how much pricing power these corporate executives feel they have? It's a great question, Lisa. And we actually use the Bloomberg Transcript Analyzer tool. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a plug. It's a fantastic tool. And we did a search on pricing. And we found that it's absolutely spiked so far this year. It had been moving up last year, and we've seen a really big spike this year. And I've noticed that, frankly, as I've gone through the transcripts, maybe a little bit less discussion on supply chain, obviously a lot of discussion on labor. That seems to be the new big issue right now. But pricing's been much more in focus in a way that we haven't seen in the past. And I would tell you, even companies that are expressing a little bit of concern about the low-end consumer, they're saying, we're going to manage pricing very careful. We're taking as much as we can get, but we'll, we'll, we'll pull back a little bit if we feel like we need to. The other side of the market that actually started delivering something for me last week was the banks. Banks had a massive week last week, Laurie. Finally starting to see higher rates translate into better performance for U.S. banks. Do you see that continuing? You know, it's interesting, John, because we've seen that banks actually start in the financial space broadly. They looked they weren't cheap anymore coming into this reporting season. They had a repricing, you know, for about a week or so. And, and the news has generally been fine outside of the higher comp expenses. Um, so I think we kind of got some of that bad news out of the way. We reset the expectations on the valuation side and it's allowed you know, sort of the good fundamentals that are in place right now to propel the banks higher again. So we'll watch for that to continue a little bit longer. I was a little bit concerned that we wiped out the valuation story so quickly to start the year, but it's back. So let's enjoy it as long as it lasts. Laurie, thank you. As always, Laurie Cavasina of RBC Capital Markets. 
Right now, we're going to get a clinic here. Every house is different. HSBC has a unique responsibility with a London and Hong Kong heritage. Stephen King and Janet Henry writing her there over. Just a wonderful Interesting look in equities, bonds, currencies, commodities. Janet Henry, their global chief economist, joins to synthesize uh, this morning. Janet, I want to go to the idea that inflation is elevated and it's going to come down. Do you have a framework that it reverts to something we knew? Or is there a new higher level of inflation we need to get used to? I think it comes down, but I don't think it goes back to pre-pandemic rates. Um, so not in that sense, uh, fully transitory. But it's not just about you know, when it comes down or, or how much it comes down. It's what happens in between and how much policy tightening actually has to be delivered in order to bring it back down. And that's, for instance, what you saw on the on the Bank of England, wasn't it? Where you had yeah. five, four members voting for 50 basis points, five members voting for 25 the four members took the view that you needed to bring it down more swiftly to prevent it becoming more of a, I suppose, a wage price yeah. dynamic. And they were prepared to take the growth consequences by voting for a more aggressive response right. at an earlier stage. I would suggest, Janet, across finance and investment, there's going to be a lot of discussion in your world of where the new neutral rate is. Do you, or critically, PhDs at the Fed, BOE, ECB, et cetera, does anybody have a clue at this point where the new neutral rate is? Uh, I'm sure people have lots of thoughts, but there is just so much uncertainty about the pandemic itself and about some of the behaviour, changing behaviour in labour markets, how permanent it is. We're all trying to get to grips with what the structural influence of energy transition costs are and indeed the longer term implications of this breadth of central bank mandates that we now have and some of the inflation risk premium that might be associated with that if central banks are increasingly focusing not just on labour markets, but financial stability and income inequality and climate change itself. So, no, in terms of the long-term neutral rate, I don't think anyone has a firm handle on where it is. Um, and a lot of it really comes down to where do you see long-term potential growth? Do you think, as a consequence of the pandemic, that long-term potential growth has risen or has it fallen? And if so, how much has it fallen? Ultimately, that will contribute to what is the long-term neutral rate. Janet, you're speaking against a lot of the hawkishness where everyone's trying to out-hawk each other right now on the street, talking about how the new normal will be very different from the old normal. And I think about your colleague, Steve Major, who has, I believe, still a 1.5% target for the Treasury, Yale 10-year Treasury, uh, by year end. Can you talk a little bit about why negative real re rates will not necessarily disappear so quickly as a lot of people think? Well, they can in the short term, but they might not um, over, over the longer term. Uh, and I think this is where we are at the moment. You know, if you think about um, policy rates, when central banks set policy rates, they're thinking, how will this influence really demand? You know, that's what central banks do. They try to iron out periods of cyclical weakness or cyclical strength to bring it in line with where they see the potential supply 
of the economy. Now, where they see the potential supply right now in a world of extreme bottlenecks, um, and indeed some of these relate to energy, some of these relate to labour markets, is that going to be more persistent or will we, once the pandemic has eased, actually, and maybe people have used up their financial cushion, whether that's from government handouts or indeed whether that's from Bitcoin trading and such like, if that fiscal cushion has come back, will we see um, actually people return to the labour market? And I think this is the issue about the long-term supply issues might be quite different to what we face currently. The current picture is actually in the short term, demand has been stronger than expected, the supply constraints have been worse than expected, and monetary conditions are too loose. And therefore, do we need just in the very short term, slightly more aggressive tightening? We think the Bank of England will be done in August, if not before, in terms of policy rate tightening. It doesn't mean that the long-term terminal rate is necessarily higher. It just means, given yeah. the looseness of monetary conditions, they need to get there a little bit more quickly. Janet, what would you have to see to think that inflation is a bit more entrenched than what you're describing? Well, I think I would need to see, when you say entrenched, I think we're getting back to at what period. And increasingly, if inflation does continue to build and wages respond to it, the question will be, do central banks play catch up? Are they willing to accept a much sharper downturn in growth, possibly even something worse than a slowdown in growth? We know that a lot of tightening cycles typically end in some kind of <clears throat> contraction in GDP. Or do they sit back and still take it too gradually and mm -hmm. you see the wage pressures start to build? And I think the risks are that the Fed does have to move a bit more aggressively than the ECB. I think the ECB has got a bit more time on its hands and, and that arguably the market's already pricing in too much in the near term um, in terms of interest rate rises um, to, to, to have to play catch up regarding bringing monetary conditions back in line with what needs to happen to lower inflation. Janet, with immense respect, and we're thrilled you're with us today, I want to stop the show and I want to ask you something inside baseball. And folks, this is for Global Wall Street, listening on radio, listening on television. And I think back to Steve Roach and the way he built Morgan Stanley Economics and all of their research capability. And you've done the same thing with Stephen King at HSBC. I want you to explain how you at HSBC Economics synthesize the fixed income call of Steve Major over in Hong Kong. I think for our global Wall Street audience, this is of critical importance to talk about how a given house has such interesting research, not controversial, but just so thought-provoking as Major looks for lower rates. Talk about that. Well, we discuss everything about the global economy, and I don't pretend to tell any fixed income strategists how bond markets work. But we know at the moment when we're moving into a world where we're getting differing rates of, of rate, rate increases coming through from central banks, and also talking quite calmly about the rate with which they're willing to scale back their balance sheets in this world, as much as I suppose many of us try to assume a certain degree of science with which this works, even the most qualified economists in academic circles and indeed in central banks have a different view on how that increase in rates and that shrinkage of the balance sheet is actually going to operate. Um, I suppose as a house, we do not subscribe to the view that actually shrinking the balance sheet at the same time 
as raising interest rates is necessarily going to be successful at pushing up long-term interest rates. Um, The fact is, if we do see a lot of monetary tightening, it wouldn't be unusual to see the yield curve reach some kind of inversion. Janet, awesome. As always, thanks for being with us. Janet Henry there of HSBC. Right now, Angela Stent joins us. She is well-known resident senior fellow at Brookings, holds court at Georgetown as well, but far more is our definitive voice on Mr. Putin. Her book of a number of years ago was absolutely definitive on reframing reframing the early Putin to the later Putin. And right now, with the Putin Doctrine and Foreign Affairs uh, magazine, she holds the high ground and on our analysis of this moment. Dr. Stent, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I want to talk about a single sentence in your The Putin Doctrine. This is his fifth president. I found that mm-hmm. extraordinary. Explain <laughs> to me the importance of the Putin longevity and that Mr. Biden is his fifth president. Well, thank you very much for having me on. So, you know, Putin sat, sat in the Kremlin. He's seen these U.S. presidents come and go. He's become quite cynical about everything. Uh, he hasn't been very impressed by a lot of these presidents. And he's now at the point where he looks at the U.S. We obviously have our domestic political troubles. He throws down the gauntlet, these two ultimatums uh, at uh, the U.S. and NATO, um, and we are essentially dancing to his tune. We're responding to his agenda. You have a flurry of diplomatic activity going on all the time, and he's sitting there watching us uh, essentially scramble to try and avoid, obviously, a major war in Europe. Angela Stent, you brilliantly review the three choices here. We're all very familiar with the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think Lisa's got some important questions on that. But you go back, you have the courage to go back to Yalta and to say there was a tripolar outcome of the Yalta system. Explain what a shock that would be to America to see Russia, China, and America with their own parts of this world. So Yalta is Putin's model. He has praised it all the time. And now, and we've just seen Putin and Xi Jinping together in Beijing talking about a new world order. This would be a shock. We thought we had ended this kind of system with two spheres of influence uh, and domination by the great powers of the smaller powers. And this is precisely what Putin would like to restore. And the Chinese, of course, would get their sphere of influence. And if you ask the Japanese or the Koreans or a number of other countries, how they would feel about that. You can imagine what they would say. And certainly the Central and East European countries do not want to go back to being in a Russian sphere of influence. Angela, how close are the allies in terms of coordinating to try to counteract exactly the outcome that Vladimir Putin is looking for? So the Biden administration, I think, has done very well trying to coordinate things. We have the German chancellor in Washington today talking to President Biden, hoping again to get him on board Uh, with, say, tough sanctions, including energy sanctions, if there is to be a war there. Uh, President Macron is in Moscow today trying to talk Putin down. Uh, Apparently, he is in close contact with the White House. So I think the coordination is pretty good. But of course, there are differences of interest between different European countries and the U.S., uh, particularly, again, if you think about sanctions. Angela, is Vladimir Putin winning? Well, at the moment, he looks as if he is, um, because 
Uh, we've there's been no de-escalation. In fact, there's more escalation. We need today 70% of the troops that would be needed for an invasion are already amassed on the border. And we are all running around uh, again, trying to find a solution to this. Uh, and he has China's back. Uh, he and Xi Jinping had put out this extraordinary statement uh, in Beijing on Friday, uh, where they are and China will support Russia in whatever it does. So it looks as if he's winning. This is concerning, considering the fact that your concluding paragraph of your essay was that Putin's overarching aim is reversing the consequences of the Soviet collapse, as we were talking about, splitting the transatlantic alliance, which sounds like it still is relatively firm, and renegotiating the geographic settlement that ended the Cold War. Can you game out what type of altercation would uh, sort of lead to his goals being achieved? So I think it's highly unlikely that he will achieve the, the goals of NATO saying that we'll never enlarge and essentially handing him back a sphere of influence, including in countries like Poland, because he has said that NATO should retreat to where it was in 1997. Um, if there is a, a or a major incursion, obviously this would be terribly destructive for Europe, but it's very hard to see that ending in giving him what he wants. We do have an alliance of 30 countries, NATO, uh, and we would resist that. Are we at a point of negotiation now? I mean, the diplomacy is us talking to ourselves and maybe Mr. Putin talking to himself or the guy over in China as well. Is there any dialogue actually going on now? I don't sense it. Well, there is dialogue going on. And, you know, we have responded to the Soviet demands and we've said, we, the U.S. and NATO, let's talk about missile defense. Let's talk about troop deployments in Europe. Let's talk about other ways uh, in which we can build, you know, rebuild confidence. Let's revitalize the NATO-Russia Council. So we have made all these proposals. Uh, The Russians have uh, responded to them. That was, you know, leaked uh, the other day uh, to El Pais. Um, So, and there are conversations going on. Um, And there, there are dialogues between the US and Russia on other issues. But the diplomacy does seem to be stalling. Angela Stent, thank you so much. Writing in Foreign Affairs, I can't say enough about the essay, The Putin Doctrine. I will put that out on Twitter uh, as well. Just a really superb essay. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.